Good morning, everybody. Hymn 455. This is our last week on this hymn. Next week is Easter, and then the week after that is a hymn Sunday, so we'll have a, a new hymn, so enjoy it. <laughs> hymn 455 stanzas, one, two, and six. The royal banners forward go, the cross shows forth, redemption's flow, where he by whom our flesh was made, our ransom in his flesh has paid. Where deep for us the spear was dyed, life's torrent rushing from his side to wash us in the precious flood where flowed the water and the blood. To thee, eternal three in one, let homage meet by all be done. As by the cross thou dost restore, so guide and keep us evermore. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross. Mercifully grant that we may follow the example of his great humility and patience and be made partakers of his resurrection. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's speak this together. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Yes, good. Flee. St. Paul says to flee which is in keeping with something that I say a lot, especially if you've been a part of the catechumenate or have watched the catechumenate or listened to the catechumenate, uh, and something that St. Paul says again in uh, Thessalonians. The prophet Amos says it a lot too. Flee from evil, run away from what is evil, and you run toward that which is good. Don't touch evil, touch good. No, you don't have any part of evil. You go to evil and evil incarnates itself in you. You make evil alive. You give evil flesh and blood and then it's in you. Um, 
This is, this is part of why, this is kind of tangential, but the idea that when the disciples go out and they try to cast out demons, and then they come back to Jesus and they say, well, I mean, we used your name, what, what gives? We couldn't do it, what's the matter? And he says, these kind go out uh, by nothing but prayer and by fasting. Now my take on that, my kind of studied exegetical position is a different one than most people will say because my position is the evil that has become incarnate in a person and the person who has opened himself up to the evil around him that now dwells within him, as long as he is not willing to give up the sins that he commits, as long as he is not willing to give up what he has incarnate within him, by prayer and fasting and spiritual discipline, nobody on heaven or earth will cast that demon out because he wants it in. So flee from it. Run away from it. And sexual immorality... I mean, sexual immorality, this is big. You read the Bible, and what are the biggest sins in the Bible? Sex and money. Look out in the world around you. What are the two biggest things that get people in trouble? Sex and money. Sex and money. And the Bible talks about sex and money more than anything else in, the, in <laughs> any other kind of a sin, but sex above everything else. Because it is, it is really good when it's used properly, and within the proper confines, it's a gift of God. But when it is not, it is very bad. Sort of like the sacraments. When they're used uh, and received by faith in their proper, uh, for their proper use, they are wonderful, wonderful things. But when they aren't, they become poison. Terrible. So flee from sexual immorality, uh, particularly pernicious sins. Lusts of the flesh don't go away easily. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. What does it mean that the sin is outside the body? It's sin that you commit, like robbing a bank or hurting somebody, something like that. It's not in, within you. Within you, it's how you, you act towards something. Yes. Um, what does the second table of the law, of which this, this uh, verse would be dealing with, the sixth commandment, if you looked ahead, uh, what does that table of the law, what relationship does that law table define? Others. Yes. Your relationship with your neighbor on this horizontal plane. The first table is with you and God, but the second table is with you and your neighbor. So when St. Paul says that every sin a man does is outside the body, he doesn't, like, what, what do you confess every Sunday morning or when you come to confession or, or anything like that? I have sinned in... Yeah, now your thoughts and your words or the sins of your heart, now those are still in you. But the point, so the point is not that, well, if I rob the bank, that's just an external sin because, you know, well, I, only thinking about robbing the bank isn't a sin. I can think about robbing the bank all I want, just as long as I don't do it. And if I do it, that's the sin. Well, no, thinking about robbing the bank's the sin too. But the damage of the sin is done outside the body. Thinking about the sin, or thinking about doing the sin is still the sin. But when you actually do it, when you commit the sin, when you, when you take the life of your brother, when you speak a harsh word, when you go to that bank and you, st you hold him up, uh, that's outside the body. But he who... It, this is in reference to the deed itself. Oh, okay. So the deed of the sin, coveting your neighbor's house leads to theft. The deed, what you do, your act, 
It doesn't negate the fact that your thoughts are still a sin, but what, it, what St. Paul is saying is that the actual act of the deed, the doing of the thing, not just the thinking about it, but the physical act of doing it, that is done outside the body with every other thing in the second table because it's between you and your neighbor and somehow you do something wrong to your neighbor. But this one, not only do you do it outside your body to your neighbor, but you do it against your own body as well. It is also a sin where you commit it against yourself. Your body is something that is holy. It is a temple of the Lord. Your deed, your external deed, your external action is something that hurts you just as badly as it hurts the person that you're doing it with. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what it means that it's a sin against your body. And this idea that particularly pernicious sins or addictive sins, which sins of sex and money always tend to be the most, of, the most addicting of the sins, the hardest to give up. Um, Gerhard, Johann Gerhard, the, the Lutheran theologian, talks about guardian angels. Lutherans do believe in guardian angels. So when the, when the evangelicals say to you, oh, your guardian angel was with you, it's okay to say, yes, yes, the, the angel really was there. Uh, so we do believe that. You do have angels. I mean, Christ says he, he sends his angels to watch over you. You pray in Luther's morning and evening prayer, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. So you, there is an angel that watches over you, but one thing Gerhard says is angels cannot tolerate sin, much like the Holy Spirit. Creatures that are holy cannot tolerate sin. So the more that you give in to this kind of stuff, the more you run to it instead of running away from it, the further away you push your angels and they are not as quick to help because they are so far away from you being pushed by your own hand. So particularly addictive sins like that, they're also sinning against your body because you're pushing away all of the divine protection that you have. Sinning against your body in that manner as well. Okay, let's speak this again. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What is the sixth commandment? Not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Good. This is big, and uh, sexually pure and decent, when, when Luther says that, that means to live a chaste life. And that doesn't just mean outside of marriage. You can live a chaste life within your marriage. St. Augustine talks about the difference between desiring, uh, desiring your wife because you love her and desiring your wife because you lust after her. It is possible to be married and still be filled with lust for the person that you're married to. So even within marriage, you are to love and honor each other. That marriage isn't an excuse that, well, you know, as long as I only lust after this one person, then it's okay because we're married. No, you are supposed to live a chaste life even within your marriage, but especially outside your marriage. Uh, and he says in what we say and do, but I'm going to add to this because, because he would, and that is it's not just about what you say and do, but it's also about what you think. Um, so, a, an action that is rooted in lust or, or in chastity, unchastity or a, um, 
uh, a word that is rooted in lust or in unchastity. Both of those are bad, but also the thoughts of the mind of that very same nature are just as abhorrent and uh, the same types of evil that you should flee from, flee from all sexual immorality. Hey, in what we say and do and think, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Again, live a chaste life even within marriage. But husband and wife in particular, uh, you, know, you can commit adultery, you can sin against the sixth commandment as a single person. And goodness knows the world nowadays has so many options to choose from if that's the sin you want to go for. And it is really horrendous. Uh, so certainly a single person can, but there is also the temptation within holy matrimony, within marriage, for a husband or for a wife not to be faithful to the other or to lust after somebody else or to somehow commit adultery in this way. So it is especially pointed for husband and wife because they're supposed to be chased with one another just as they're supposed to be chased outside. There's a whole other level here that now you're also supposed to be chased in the world around you, but you're also supposed to be chased here within this relationship. Husband and wife, love and honor. You know, in the old wedding vows, one of the things that it said was, with my body I worship thee. Uh, and that's given only to one another. Now, I think they cha maybe changed that when they redid the language and it said something like, I pledge to you my faithfulness or something like that because they don't want, well, we don't want to say we worship because that's idolatry. But that isn't the sense of what it means. What it means is, I give you honor. With my body, I, I thee worship. Uh, the old, old vows from the Sarum Rite in England. Okay? So remember, um, adultery begins with the eyes and the heart. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with deeds. That's why you also have to be chaste about what you think because it begins here and here and here and it only manifests itself in deeds after it has begun. Uh, so you don't lust after the woman. You don't want to commit adultery with the woman until you've looked at her and thought about her in your heart and that's why Jesus says even the one who has lusted after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery with her. Uh, Again, so this is like when the Pharisees say to Jesus, oh, we're pretty righteous. We've kept the Ten Commandments. And he says, oh, have you? And he says, you know, well, I haven't killed my neighbor. Oh, haven't you? Have you ever thought something bad about him? Well, I mean, sure, we all have. Well, then you've killed him. You've broken the Fifth Commandment. Well, I've never committed adultery, though. I'm very faithful to my wife. Well, have you ever had a thought about your next-door neighbor? She walks out to get the newspaper. Oh, hmm. Well, that's adultery too. Look at, see, it's like the Pharisees just, you can't ever win no matter what you do. You can't get away from it. So uh, this is the last thing I'll say. Do you remember that old song? Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Careful little hands what you do. Careful little mouth what you speak. There's a lot of credence in this. And sometime I'm going to write an article about this for the newsletter or for the paper or something. But the, the Christian understanding of really what it is for be careful what little eyes what you see. Now, so you're scrolling through the internet. Be careful little eyes what you see. You're watching TV or like, I don't know, a Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> or, uh, or, I don't know, the Grammys. Yes. <laughs> be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, and flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. You uh, HBO subscribers, 
Be careful in lies what you see. Oh, it's just HBO. Be careful. Once the hook is in, it's a whole lot harder to get off the line than it is for the line to reel you in. Okay, questions? Yes? Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> I understand what you mean, and I hope you understand what I mean, which is the text of the Sixth Commandment is not redefined just because the world decides it's going to redefine marriage. The state can say whatever it wants about what a marriage is, but the state isn't the one that defines it. The state is what declares what a marriage is within that particular state. And you want to know what? They can do whatever they want as far as I'm concerned. They can say whatever marriage, they can say a guy can marry his horse. Um, I think some woman in England married a bridge. Oh, I love the bridge, I marry the bridge. You can, say marriage, you can say marriage is whatever you want. The state can fine anybody who says that that is different, but at the end of the day, the state doesn't define marriage according to its substance. That's, that's the bottom line. The Lord is the one who defines what marriage is, and the state can say anything about marriage that they want, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a reality there. Sorry, you can go to Sunday school, kids. <laughs> they all left, but you faithful remnant. <laughs> By the way, on this issue of... Um, same-sex marriage, this is, this is just sort of a passing thing. This is not what I want to spend all of our time today talking about because I know we could. And I'm telling you right now, I don't want to do that. Um, when St. Paul talks about the, uh, you know, when he, when he goes through the list of neither shall the so-and-so, the so-and-so, the so-and-so, the fornicator, the adulterer, the, uh, um, the, um, homosexual the, or the sodom, sodomist. And he says all these things. Neither will these people inherit the kingdom of heaven. Firstly, what it doesn't mean is, well, if you've ever committed a sin in your life, you're out of luck. It's this idea of something that is pernicious. This is our definition of a mortal sin. If you know anything about the Catholic Church, you know that there is something called a mortal sin and something called a venial sin. And Lutherans actually believe that, that there is such a thing as a mortal sin and such a thing as a venial sin. The difference between what we would teach and what the Roman Catholics would teach is that the Roman Catholics have a very specific list that they say, well, this, this, according to this specific list, this thing is a mortal sin or this thing is a venial sin. Whereas in the Lutheran Church, the sins are defined not just because of the fact that they are sins, uh, but because of the fact, uh, because of their effect on somebody. So, like... Me stealing a pack of gum from the grocery store could be a venial sin for me because it's one that I quickly repent of and then never do again. But for some kind of a habitual thief, a kleptomaniac, uh, that can be a mortal sin because it's one that they struggle with and one they're not willing to give up. 
So whatever sin is the addictive sin that sort of defines how you behave and live and the one that you really struggle with and you just feel like, well, I couldn't possibly give this up. That's the mortal sin because it's dragging you down. So what St. Paul means by that is the people who participate in these sins and who do it habitually with no repentance, who don't flee from it but who run to it. Now, the second kind of funny thing about that is what is translated as homosexual and sodomist or sodomizer, there are there's two distinct words in the Greek language that both mean a homosexual act, and basically what it means is you're not supposed to be the man or the woman in a homosexual relationship, which means, hey, listen, uh, man and wife... <laughs> It doesn't really apply in that scenario because you, if you're in that kind of a union, uh, you're really not supposed to be holding either of those positions. So, and that was something pretty common. You know, they say, oh, well, but that Bible wasn't, Paul wasn't talking about loving, committed relationships. Do you, do you know anything about the Greek culture? The Greek culture said that it was normal for old men and kids, little boys, to get together. I'm pretty sure St. Paul knew what he was talking about. The Romans did a similar thing, and the Roman army was pretty bad because, well, you don't have any women around, so what do you do? So St. Paul knows what he's talking about, and, and this idea that, well, oh, oh, well, was, the, the Bible's ancient. It, wasn't, it would never have conceived of two people that actually cared about each other this way. Oh, that's, that's a whole lot of manure. How did we get last week from a kid going in and killing them? six Asian, Asian girls in a massage parlor to we don't like Asians. And he fully admits that's why he killed them. We don't like Asians. Larry, let me tell you something. If I knew that... <laughs> Good news, I know that. Yeah, well, if I knew that, you'd have to call me the Lord. Because if I knew that, I'd be omniscient. But I don't know, and I, I don't understand. I don't understand about 98% of what happens in the world around me. I sit around watching the news and scratching my head, and that's if I'm not steaming at it. So I just try and catch the highlights and stay away. So, all right, let's talk. Oh, did you have a question, Nancy? The, uh, those same-sex marriages in our country maybe other countries too, the, uh, they were being, okay, okay, you're all right, you're okay. But now the Pope is saying no. Yeah, that's, that was kind of funny. It, so this is funny because we have, listen, there are some Popes that I actually really love. In fact, one of the Popes is is in my top five most influential and formative theologians of my entire life. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, my goodness, that man is a God-given gift to the church. He is so smart, and he writes some of the most wonderful things. So don't get me wrong when I say this. Uh, there are many popes that I actually have a lot of respect for and whose readings I really like. The current pope is not one of them. <laughs> I think he uh, is quite poor. And even if his personal opinions are not what they are, he, has at the, he is at the very least someone who has caused a great deal of confusion. 
And I think that it is absolutely hilarious that everybody in the world thought he was on their side. And they loved him to bits. And now he has come out and officially said, no, the church does not endorse this. And the entire world has exploded. I sat back, I popped some popcorn, and I just watched it all happen. <laughs> because I'm kind of a psychopath. <laughs> but I, was, I just thought it was so hilarious how for years and years and years and years, the media has been saying, oh, he's just the most wonderful. He's on our side. He understands he's so progressive in the Christian church. And now he's, he, the golden child, has become an enemy for simply stating the thing that Christ has said. You know, I, one of my friends said something once that I, just here lately actually, that I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, it's really weird that in the modern world, you can be called unchristlike for doing and saying the very same things that Jesus did and said. Isn't that funny? You can do exactly the same things that Jesus said and did, and they're going to look at you and say, boy, well, Jesus wouldn't have done that. You say, well, uh, hate to differ, but he, he actually did both say and do that. But anyway, anyway. Bill, yes? Okay, I don't want to talk about same-sex marriage this whole time, so this will be... I just want to make a comment that, <laughs> that if the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, three million, whatever, yeah. makes a comment that's somewhat controversial to the uh, current uh, progressive thinking, uh -huh. they, they, they catch a lot of heat. But when the Catholic Church speaks, for a lot of the news media people, um, there's lots and lots of Catholics in the, in the news world. Hmm? Lots of them. And when the Catholic Church speaks, they kind of catch their breath because there's a billion Catholics, not a million, there's a billion Catholics in the world and they're a little bit hesitant among the major news medias to take on the Catholic Church. That's too big. They'll take on the Lutheran Church because we're insignificant, mm -hmm. number-wise. But they're hesitant to go after the, the total Catholic Church. Now, maybe individually the Pope gets some heat. Even Ratzinger got heat from the real ultra-liberals because he had, was in the German army in World War II. Yeah. The fact that he was drafted didn't matter. But anyway, <laughs> everybody will catch heat. By the way, I'm no conspiracy theorist, but I don't think he resigned. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay, so it's been two weeks. We got through the first quote on the handout. We're making real good, real good progress, racing along. <laughs> okay, here's something that I want to do. Before we jump into some of this other stuff, I want to I talk a little bit more about this, and I want to start by asking this question. The quote is how about a Christian should, should daily think about his life, and really that being like the saying of Ash Wednesday, remember, O man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. Now that's Ash Wednesday, you come to, in, you, you know, in liturgics, or excuse me, in the liturgy, 
liturgically, you come into contact with your own mortality. The ash and the myrrh on your forehead, that's you. That's what you're going to be. You're going to go to ash and the myrrh is the sweet spice that we're going to put on your stinky body before we put it in the tomb. Uh, takes a lot of myrrh. You know, they, uh, when you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they go in there with this myrrh oil and they pour it all over the stone and they rub it in. And that smell, is, it's beautiful, but it punches you in the face. It is pungent. You, you almost can't breathe when you first walk into that building because it's just, it just chokes you. But it's, I mean, it's a great kind of choke, right? Like if Jesus came down, hey, but it smells so nice, right? Uh, so anyway, um, all of that is you coming face to face with your own mortality. Somebody looks you in the eye and basically says to you, hey, buddy, you're going to die. Now sit down and I'll tell you about it. That's what Ash Wednesday is. But the text hey, remember, O oh man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return, is really your daily, that's your daily thing. You wake up in the morning, you pray to the Lord, you make the sign of the cross, you pray this all the time, and then you think, well, you know, to dust thou shalt return eventually someday. So the Christian ponders death a lot, and one of the worst things that we've done as, as a church and also as a society is that we've sugar-coated death. Like, what's a funeral now? You go to a funeral and it's a celebration of life. But it's not a funeral because a funeral is sad. Um, we want to have a celebration of life. Well, it's not a well, if it's <laughs> I'll wait, I'll wait. We'll celebrate the life when he gets back up and does a jig. But until that happens, we're not celebrating that life. Like I told you what I said at my great-grandmother's funeral. We're here to celebrate your life, but it's not that guy's life. We're here to celebrate the life of Christ because that life of Christ is now that guy's life. That's the life we're here to celebrate. But death is not a pretty thing. And and, and we just, we sugarcoat it and then we choose not to talk about it. Oh, well, death, or you, you, you put it off. Hey, anytime you want to talk about your funeral, come talk to me. We get hymns picked out. I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you good readings and stuff. That's just fine. You don't have to be on your deathbed to do that. Um, in fact, honestly, it actually is kind of helpful. So if you know the stuff that you want, come talk to me. Make a file. Write it down. We'll get it taken care of. You know, just think about it. If you want good hymn suggestions, too, I have so many that I could give you. you know, if your celebration of life is just going to be a great big hymn sing, I might consider it. You better sing songs that I like. <laughs> it's not about you, though, see? In life or death, it's not about you. Listen to the homily t or the sermon today. <laughs> I really want John Lennon played at my funeral because I love this song so much. It's like, Okay, but your ears don't hear anymore. <laughs> there's, a, there's a time and a place for all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so, um, no, for real, like I said last week, you want to get together and you want to tell funny stories, you want to listen to songs, hey, we'll have a sandwich and we'll sit there and we'll laugh and we'll tell all the funny things that you did in your life and, and remember all of your little quirks and, oh, you know, remember how you used to do that? Oh, boy, <laughs> and you just laugh and laugh and laugh and have a good time. And that's a, an important part of the grieving, but it isn't the part of the funeral itself. So we've sugar-coated death. We don't think about it. Ooh, ooh it's scary. You know, and, then, and then death starts to come and you don't know what to do and you panic. Or like you see that first gray hair pop into your head and you go, oh no, ah, what am I gonna do? My body's getting older, something, I'm gonna die. And you have your midlife crisis or your existential moment of, oh, oh what am I gonna do? I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> you just, hey, listen, you're a Christian. Just think about death, think about death for a little bit. It's okay. It's not really all that scary, okay? So um, here's the deal. 
Why is it that you think about death? Hmm? Okay, it's inevitable, yeah. I think I preached a, a sermon at one point where I said something like, there's nowhere you can hide where death won't find you and you can never run fast enough to outrun death. I honestly don't think about it mostly until somebody close has died. Yeah. You know, then you think, oh, man, we should have a funeral plot. Sure, I mean, there are certain aspects of it you don't really think of, like, like the funeral plot maybe you don't think of, but... You're reminded, I mean, you're reminded every time you come to church that you are at some point going to die because you, if you confess your sins, then you're acknowledging that I am a sinner and that means that eventually this sinful flesh will go back to dust. So, oh yeah, yeah, you know, everything in the world reminds you that it's a sinful world and all of, you see death all over and around you. This is the one thing I ask of you. Yeah, think about death, but when you see death around you, there's three open spots right here Oh, you'd rather be a good Lutheran and sit in the back. <laughs> I, I, that's how, that's uh, what I have been told. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. I can always tell when the choir is singing. I mean, not like I don't know when they're singing, but if I didn't know, I could always tell because the first like three or four pews on both sides are completely empty and the congregation doesn't start until like halfway through the sanctuary. And the people there, even halfway through, are kind of like, ooh, ooh I'm in the front now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness yeah so um, death is inevitable it comes there's no place that you can hide where it won't find you there's no place you can you, you can't run fast enough to outrun it you know part of this whole coronavirus deal people coming into contact with their own mortality part of the sad thing for pastors is seeing how people respond to the fact that they're finally coming face to face with the reality that maybe I'll die and they hide in their homes and they don't ever go anywhere you know like too, too afraid even to go to the grocery store and you think but is it not going to come into your house? Is your house hermetically sealed for your protection? If it's in the air that you breathe and you are breathing, then you know, eventually it's going to... Now, I mean, I'm not saying be an idiot, but I'm also saying don't be living your life in a constant state of panic where every... You know, I'm too afraid to drive because I think I might crash my car and drive. I'm too afraid to take ibuprofen because I think that some, someday I might have a chemical reaction that'll kill me because it'll attack my liver. I'm too afraid to do... The, I'm too afraid... You know, if you live your life with this constant fear of what might happen because it might kill you, you're going to kill yourself with worry! Look, even trying to avoid death's going to be the thing that kills you. Come on! You try to solve the problem, you just make a new problem. Just live your life. Good gravy that's gonna come and it's okay don't worry about it so let's look at John chapter 12 oh did you yeah you, you mentioned uh, a hymn saying for a funeral oh shoot are you taking me up on that <laughs> close, close. <laughs> I've been to one Bessie Heights who was Bernie Heights' mother they had a hymn saying at her funeral and this was nowhere near the Christmas season and we sang Joy to the World. It was one of the six or seven songs that we sang. Uh, I went to a funeral. It was a hymn sing. When, and, but Patrick Jenkins had a homily with it too. I went to a funeral once. It was a really good funeral. It was a... I was on vicarage and I didn't realize that the president of my home congregation at the time, his family actually was all from Missouri. And... Um, his father still lived here and his father died. And my mom called me and said, oh, he died. And I, I knew the president pretty well. He was close with our family. So I was pretty close where I was on Vicarage. And I just went out 
and I just showed up at the funeral. And uh, they were like good old Lutherans. There wasn't a hymn from the LSB at that entire funeral. Everything was the TLH. You're like, these are the ones we're gonna do. And there were like eight hymns from the TLH and they sang all 13 stanzas of every single one. And it was, hey, all right, now here, now we're cooking. Like, this is, a, this is great. I'll sit here for three hours if this is how long it takes for this funeral because I don't want to leave. This is like heaven here. The funeral doesn't have to be a sad thing. Now, just because it's called a funeral, just because there's a dead person, it doesn't have to be a sad thing. That's the whole point of a funeral. You know, uh, why is the color for a funeral white in the Lutheran church? We don't put black out. I mean, we, we have a new funeral pall that's coming, so the cat's out of the bag. Sorry to spoil it. But, and the, the funeral pall has little black stripes, like orphreys, a, a cross that's made of black. But it's white. Why are the colors for a funeral white? Yeah, the resurrection, the righteousness of Christ. I mean, it's, it's all of this. There's hope in the resurrection. I'm going to come out wearing white because we're talking about the resurrection because there's joy even at a funeral. Now, you can cry and that's just fine, but there's joy. And joy doesn't mean happiness. But you have joy. You have confidence because you know that there is life because Christ has redeemed that person. So a funeral actually ends up being a joyous thing. And I can never, ever, 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 ever preach any homily the way that I can preach a funeral homily because a funeral homily is a very, very specific kind of a homily. And that's the only time you get to preach the gospel that way. So, Christians, I said this at Verlene Hall's funeral. Your job is singular. Your job is to die well. And my job is singular. It is to ensure that you do die well, to prepare you to die well. That's my entire job. Why do I preach? Why do I teach? Why do I administer the sacraments to you? To prepare you for the end so that you can die well in confidence and in faith, knowing your Lord, having received your Lord, trusting in your Lord. And your job is to die well. That doesn't mean you go walk out in front of a bus, but it does mean that when the time comes, um, when the time comes, you know death is coming and you know that you're ready for it because you have your Lord and your Lord is with you. Okay? And I'll come out and I'll, I'll give you last rites and I'll sing to you. It'll be, a, it'll be kind of a peaceful thing. All right, let's look at John 12. <clears throat> this is the processional gospel for today, the beginning of John 12, which is um, Christ entering the holy city. Palm Sunday today. By the way, what? Yeah, Lent 6, Easter's next week. But, so here's the funny thing, I'll, I'll just mention this. Do you remember uh, what happens before Jesus comes in, in the Gospel of John? Do you remember what happens, what the Pharisees and scribes and everybody are trying to do before Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey? Oh yes, I'm glad that you don't remember. They try to kill Lazarus. They, have a, they put together a plot because they want to try and kill Lazarus. Why do you, want to, why do you think they want to kill Lazarus? Why? Because Jesus raised him. Because Jesus raised him from the dead. So he walks around saying, hey, Jesus really is the Son of God. He raised me from the dead. And they say, well, what are we going to do with this guy? We better uh, you know, get rid of him. <laughs> so right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, the Pharisees are all going, oh, how are we going to put this? How are we going to get this Lazarus guy's a big problem? The people all think that he's right. It's like uh, when they get, what was, that? was it last? Was it this last Wednesday? The reading was long. It was, a, it was a whole chapter out of John, and it was the blind man 
Yeah, okay. The blind man, Jesus tells him, hey, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he gets his sight. And then he goes back into Jerusalem, and everybody's so mad at him. Hey, wait a minute. How can you see? <laughs> what? Why are you mad that he can see? He said, Who did that? Well, Jesus did it. Well, wait a minute. No, he didn't. And they, they call in his parents. Hey, is this really your son, or is this guy an actor? Like, no, that's really our son, but we don't know how he got his sight. And he keeps telling him, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. And they, and he's, and they, say, they say, well, he's a sinner. He couldn't do it. And he says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner, but I can tell you that he did it and only God can do what he did, so I think he's God. And they say, well, why do you think he's God? And he said, I'm talking to a brick wall here. You're not listening. I'm just done talking to you. And then they kick him out. They excommunicate him. Excommunicatio, you are not a part of us anymore. I mean, that's such a great tale. But now look at this. Now look, now it's Lazarus. Hey guys, Jesus raised me from the dead. I really was there. And then that ties in with the entrance into Jerusalem because there are a whole bunch of people who come to see Jesus walk into Jerusalem. Why? Because they witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead and now Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and they want to see this guy. Oh boy, look at this guy. He, he got Lazarus out of that tomb. Oh, hail Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, here it is, this whole thing. But now at verse 20, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Oh, that's so great. I went to a church once and it had that above the altar, stenciled on the wall in nice uh, calligraphic gold script. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Ooh, all oh, that kind of stuff gets me. You gotta love it, you gotta love it. Everything teaches. Right, so you go in. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servants will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Okay, so the Greeks want to see Jesus, and he says, no. Hey, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And he says, no, not right now. You can see me when I'm hanging on a cross. That's what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Where is the Son of Man glorified? In death upon the cross. Listen, you have to, the, the crucifixion is the center of everything. The flesh and blood of Jesus hanging on the cross is the center of everything. Where is Jesus glorified? On the cross. Where is Jesus enthroned? On the cross. Where is your atonement? On the cross. Your atonement is not in the resurrection. Your atonement is actually in the crucifixion. Your salvation is one, not in the resurrection, but in the crucifixion. That's why the crucifixion is such an important thing. That's why we have pictures of it, because that's your life. That's your salvation. You want to see what the love of God looks like? It doesn't look like an empty tomb. It looks like a full cross. That's what the love of God is, sending his son to die and his son in the flesh in, uh, in death for you. That's the love of God. So he says, the Greeks can see me when I'm dying on the cross, which is interesting because the uh, titulum, the um, sign that they put above the cross? What languages is it written in? Hebrew, Hebrew and, and Greek. So then the Greeks who want to see Jesus go and they see him while he's crucified on the cross with a sign in their own language that says, hey, this guy's the king of the Jews. 
I mean, you've got to tie this stuff together. Isn't the Bible cool? You can live your whole life and read the Bible every day, and I guarantee you, you'll never be an expert. You'll learn something new every day. That's why confirmation is your graduation from preschool to kindergarten, because you never quite make it out of kindergarten. You just always, you spend the rest of your life learning shapes and colors. Oh, I never saw that before. Look at that. I mean, that's it. Oh, now it fits. Eh? That's the whole life of the Christian. Right, so, the hours come, ba 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 He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Boy, but this is hard. What does it mean when he says, he who loves his life and he who hates his life? Do any of you hate your life? No, I mean, you've got kids, grandkids, family, friends. I mean, you, you like your house, you like your job, you like where you go to church, hopefully. You know, you like this. <laughs> you like this stuff. I mean, you can say that you're happy. Maybe you're happy with your life. So then how do you say, hey, you got to, well, you know, you got to hate your life. What, is that? what does it mean? Okay, you hate your sinful life, sure. Don't make your life on this earth your idol. Yes, don't make your life on earth, this life on earth your mother. Jesus also says, he who loves father or mother or son or daughter uh, more than me is not worthy of me. Does that mean you shouldn't love your husband, wife, son, daughter, grandkids, nieces, nephews? Sister, brother, does that mean you shouldn't love them? I think the order of Maria Osmond, Osborne, what was her name? The singer, Maria Osborne. Okay. I'm going to say I know that's not right. She said the family was strongly Mormon, and she says, uh, our family is family first, church second, and life or friends third. Oops. And I think the point what you're trying to make is that as much as we love our family, God is first, family is second, our life is third. Yes, actually, that's the point Jesus is trying to make. Yeah. Um, Excuse me. <laughs> I mean, I, thanks for the compliment, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding, my head's not that big. Um, right, so uh, here's an example. Um, you have the choice of the sacrament or you have the choice of family members that say, if you go to church, we won't let you spend time with us. What do you do? I'm not saying that this isn't, I'm not saying this is an easy decision. Like, oh, well, sure, you know, I guess I just choose never to see you again. You're lost. Oh, it's, it's not an easy decision to make. Christ never said that your decisions in life were going to be easy, and he never said your life was going to be comfortable. But Christ is the one who's good for you, and Christ offers the things for you. So when you're faced with a choice like that, what does it mean to uh, love Christ more than your, your father or mother or sister or brother? It means that you go where Christ is, and if, the, if where Christ is is not where father, mother, husband, wife, sister, brother is, you still go where Christ is. That faith follows Christ. Faith doesn't follow husband, wife, brother, sister, you can still love them, that's fine, but you go where Christ is. Yes, you have a question. You have your question face. Okay. Uh, are you sure? Were the Osmonds, not Jehovah's, what were they? Mormons. Mormons, yeah. That's a whole other ball game. I didn't mean that they were Mormons. 
I don't want to open that can. Um, right, so knowing that, then he who loves his life shall lose it. He who hates his life shall gain it. So what's this all about? Who is the person that hates his life? Pardon me? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, it's you, really. No, the person who hates his life is the one who gains his life. So when Jesus says hates his life, he doesn't mean, well, this is the most miserable experience I've ever endured. I hate my life. Eeyore. It's not about hating as in, this is so disgusting, I can't stand it. Um, when Christ says that you should hate your life and that's how you preserve your life, it means that you recognize your life is not your idol, that your life is a life of sin, that there is a greater life, that you, you, know, don't, you don't make this idol, you don't seek to preserve beyond the, beyond the limits that the Lord has set in place. When death comes, you say, Death comes. The person who loves his life in the, in the sense that Christ is talking about here is the person who, you know, that sort of comedic example that I used before, the worrywart who kills himself from worry, trying, worrying about all the different ways I could possibly die, so concerned about making sure I don't die that I do all of this extra stuff. That's the person who loves his life and is trying to, trying to keep it. It's, it's a question of this. Do you know what's going to happen? You do. Eventually, your life is going to leave. Your life will be taken, and that's okay. And when it comes, you give it, you give it up. Um, so that's, that's what it's about. Um, not saying, oh, I, uh, I despise my life, and I despise my children, and I despise everybody in the whole world. That's not what it means to hate your life. Just means to recognize that it's not the end all and someday you won't have it. Okay? Which is to say this this is why the Christian thinks about death. Because you're going to die. Because it's a reality and it comes for you sooner or later, eventually. Maybe it'll come tomorrow. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll come a hundred years from now. Maybe it won't. Who knows? But when it comes and death comes to take you, you say, okay. And you pray with the hymn writer, Lord, let at last thine angels come to Abram's bosom, take me home, that I may die unfearing. And in its narrow chamber keep my body safe and peaceful sleep until thy reappearing. That's what you say. That's the person who hates his life. Not because he despises his life, but because he recognizes a greater life. And when this life is up, he says, okay, amen, Jesus. That's what faith does, right? Faith agrees. One, a one-word summary of faith is faith agrees. When Jesus says, go here, faith says, amen. When Jesus says, go here, faith says, amen. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, faith says, amen. When Jesus says, hey, this is my body, this is my blood, come and have some supper, faith says, amen. Faith agrees. And then when Jesus says, well, child, it's time to go down for your nap, time to sleep, you say, amen. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And that is what it means to die well. And that is my job. That you would die well. That on your deathbed, if you're able to receive it, I'll give you the sacraments. And if you're not able to receive it, I'll still come. I'll forgive your sins. I'll read to you from Scripture about what Christ has done for you. 
and continues to do for you and will continue to do for you. I'll sing hymns for you. I'll sing the little bits of the liturgy for you because you'll never forget that. You might lose everything from your mind and everything from your memory, but this is the stuff that stays with you. Trust me, because I've seen it. Yes? I would be remiss if I didn't say this, and I know you're going to say, oh, you don't need to say this, but um, I, <laughs> we got to be witness of when pastor came and gave my mom her last rites, and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in all my life. The Lord, the Lord is at work even in death. And, and, and this is the thing, too. I mean, you have to know that I don't care. Actually, in this, no, I'm not. I was going to say, in this room, I think I'm actually the youngest person here. But I'm not. The kids saved me. Well, high schooler and middle schooler. <laughs> yeah. You're not kids anymore. Um, but I am, I am still probably in the top in the top five youngest people in the room. <laughs> oh, six. Okay, top six um, youngest people in the room. Right? So um, it's kind of weird in, in some respects. Like, if you get in trouble with your pastor, it's really weird to have some 29-year-old punk come and yell at you about what you should have been doing. And like, am I, oh, oh, I going to take this from you, you whippersnapper? <laughs> hey, get it? Get it? Um, okay, no, but here's the serious thing. It is a little bit strange um, because no matter how much older than me you are, you're still my child. Um, and when I say things like, my dear children, I'm not using flowery church language. I'm speaking sincerely because you really are my children. I'm your father here and I'm your children and I love you and I care about you. And that means when, you, uh, when you're on your deathbed, even the oldest among you, when you're on your deathbed, you're still my child. And you're God's child. Listen to a funeral homily sometime. You'll, one of mine, I mean. Um, and just listen for the very end, because all of my funeral homilies end exactly the same way. Requiescat in pacem. Rest in peace, my dear child and God's dear child. That's how they all end. And I take care of you because I'm your pastor, and because the Lord has told me, these are my precious sheep, and I want you to be the one to take care of them while I'm away. And I say, okay, I'm the steward of the house. Okay, I'm like the babysitter. Mom and dad are gone and I'm the one in charge. And then I look out and everybody knows it's substitute teacher. <laughs> no, but uh, so I'm, I'm here and he says, hey, take care of these people because I love them. And then he says, and you know what? Because I love them, you need to love them too. And I say, well, okay. Um, but I don't, love, I don't love you only because the Lord loves you, although I do love you because the Lord loves you. I also love you because you're my kids. And that means that when I minister to you on your deathbed, it's me as a pastor taking care of you because you are the Lord's and you are part of my flock. And as the Lord is the good shepherd, I am the under-shepherd. I'm like the shepherd apprentice. So I know kind of the stuff that I'm supposed to do and he reins me in if I'm wrong and lets me go if I'm right. And, but, you know, you care for the people because that's the calling. But you also care for them. Be, I also care for you because you're my children. So, you know, your deathbed isn't a time when I get with you and we clown around and joke like maybe we do if we're hanging out at your house. This is a time for love and care and gentleness and peace um, through the pastoral office and from your dear father to his dear children. 
And that's part of me preparing you to die well. And you can, you can witness it, but it will never hit home for you until you're the one in the bed. Until you're the one in the bed. You can, you can gather around, you can see how pastor takes care of the dead and the dying, but it will, and it'll, and it'll mean something to you probably, I hope at least, you know, everything teaches, even how you behave. You turn a living room or a hospital room into a, a little church and you treat it with the same reverence that you would the sanctuary, but you'll never quite understand until you're the one in the bed and I come down and I kneel at your bed with you and we pray and sing hymns and I anoint you with oil. And uh, this is why every funeral is hard and they never get easier because I love you all so much. And because losing a child happens every time someone from this parish dies. But I take care of you too because I love you. That's the job of a pastor. That's why I prepare you to die because I love you. Jesus wants you to die well because Jesus loves you. Because Jesus doesn't want you to die afraid of what could happen. He wants you to die in peace knowing what's going to happen and knowing that he has you and that he's not going to let you go just because you died. In fact, he's actually going to hold you tighter. Okay? He's got like G.I. Joe Kung Fu grip. And then he's got you and he's not going to let you go. But you think about death and dying, and this is, this is the stuff that I want you to think about when you consider it. Remember, O oh man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. It isn't about, oh boy, whew, you're going to die someday. Hope you're ready to meet your maker. It's about, hey, listen, death's a reality, and it's coming for you, but I don't want you to be afraid of it. I want you to be at peace. I want to bring you comfort. I want you to know what's happening. I want you to trust in your Lord because your Lord has made promises to you. And I guarantee you that throughout your life, you've never seen the Lord break a promise. And on your deathbed, you're not going to see it either. On your deathbed, you're going to see the greatest promise kept that the Lord has made to you, which is that he will safeguard you and that you'll die in the blessed hope of the resurrection that is to come. And that someday, you with the hymn writer, will see with your own eyes, with Job, with flesh and sinews and muscle and bones, your body coming back up out of the ground, looking with your eyes at your Lord, seeing him face to face without a veil in between you for the first time in your entire life. For the first time you will see him as he is. The, the closest that you can ever get to that is coming to the divine service and coming to communion because that is as close to Jesus in the flesh right standing in front of you as you will ever get in this world. But when Christ comes and you're raised up and you have now new fleshy eyes that don't need spectacles, you can look and you can see him and that new veil is torn in half. There's, there's no shadows moving behind it. You know, Christ is there and the angels are there and all of heaven is there, but you're right there. You're like this. You're as close to the line as you can be, but you can't get across. But then you'll see, and oh, will you see what your Lord is in the flesh. You know, Charles Wesley writes that great, great, great Advent hymn, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. And one of the lines in that hymn is, Gaze we on those glorious scars. Christ comes and he gives his hand to you and you look and he comes back in the flesh. His body's not healed. He comes and he says the same thing to you that he says to Thomas. Hey, child. Hey, remember me? Here, put your hand. Look at that. 
You see this nail mark? This is why you get to come with me. Hey, here, put your hand in my side. You know, those scars are glorious. Glorious. And you know, a, a great professor once preached a homily for All Saints Day at the seminary, and one of the things he said was, all of the martyrs of the faith, they're gonna, they're, they still will bear their wounds in their flesh because the same flesh that is killed is the same flesh that rises. That's important too. You don't get a new body, you have the same one. It's just not, pardon the language, it's just not sucky anymore. <laughs> okay? You get this, this body, this, why the flesh matters. That's why, you know, I don't like cremation because the flesh matters. That's why I always tell you, hey, maybe rethink if your cremation plans. I, I want to have a body there to bless. I want to put that whole body into the ground. And if, if, if money's an issue, well, come talk to me and we, we'll help you to make sure that there's an actual body there because that's a greater confession. When there's an actual body, we take care of the body. We don't, um, you know, the funeral home director makes, makes the body look nice and all that, but, but we've got this casket, you get a nice casket and you, you know, we don't drive it around like it's a shopping cart. Oh, here it's coming through, coming through, casket, casket. No, we treat it with reverence and we treat it with care because the body is still the body and it's important. And that same flesh is going to rise again, but glorious. And so he said these martyrs rise on the last day and they're bearing the same flesh that they had, but that means you still see, just like in Jesus, their wounds. So the saints of old that were burned alive, they come and now they're wearing these glorious raiments. All of their scars have now become something that gives them honor. John the baptizer, boy, just wait till you see him with a giant collar of gold around his neck. The wounds that are turned into the blessings, the wounds of the martyrs, all of those martyrs eaten by wild beasts, gored by rabid heifers, slain by gladiators, all of their wounds, you're going to see them and they're going to be glorious scars that shine forth with the grace of the Lord. Can't wait. Go on and hate your life because there's something better coming. When death comes, say to Jesus, Amen, good shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Faith says, Amen. All right, we got to go. We'll see you at the altar.